0: Well, it felt like my whole message today was contained in that song. If I had to give it a title, I would call it Resurrection Hermeneutic. Uh, A little messy, but we made it through the resurrection as a congregation, and what a full and wonderful Holy Week. 10 services with four meals in seven days. A clergy friend of mine sent me a Facebook quote that said, seven sacred days, hallelujah. Christ is risen. But dear Lord, the clergy are dead. <laughs> it was a wonderful time. And personally, I especially loved those early morning services, not the getting up, but once the arrival was there, they were great. So thank you for all of you and so many of you poured your heart out in service to this congregation in preparing meals and other things. Hermeneutics, ways of interpreting a text or scripture or any other literature or the lens or lenses that we look through when we interpret something. And how you look at it can make a huge difference. When I was attending seminary, I took two history courses on the history of the American church And then another course on the history of the African American church. Same time period, totally different history. What made the difference? Points of view, hermeneutics. And When your hermeneutic is stretched by a different hermeneutic, your eyes are open to a new way of thinking, of understanding, which is both enlightening confronting, and sometimes confusing. It's hard work. It requires study and thought. And it reminds me of the Rumi poem, beyond all thoughts of right and wrong, there's a field. Let's meet there. Carl Jung said, thinking is difficult, and that's why most people judge. Judging allows you to stay, pridefully naïve and certain in your own little hermeneutic. And today's gospel text and the Acts text are great primers for this hermeneutic of resurrection. And now that the resurrection has happened, we have all these appearance stories in our gospel reading. And our temptation is to go to them primarily as proofs of the resurrection, these are stories of unsuspecting men and women who have given up the dream of a political messiah and hadn't fully understood the meaning of a spiritual or inner personal messiah. All of them were afraid and discouraged. And many of the followers and disciples of Jesus felt their whole world collapse and sought to get away from it. And all and many of it, many of them went back or tried to go back to their old lives. Judas, overwhelmed with shame, hung himself. Some went fishing. Others locked themselves in their houses, afraid that they would be next. Two went back to their home in the town of Emmaus, confused and reluctantly resuming their old life. But there were some women who didn't look for an escape. They went to the tomb to anoint the body and to be close to him, to hang on to his presence. Certainly an act of love and devotion and remorse. But it was over. They had so hoped that he would be the one. And it is in these contexts that Christ appears, displays his wounds, and eats with them. And in so doing, we see those words, he opened their minds to the scriptures, hermeneutics. He did the same in the Road to Himaeus story, which precedes this text in Luke. He presented them with a new hermeneutic, a bigger way of looking at the scriptures and life, a bigger lens. What might that lens be or be like? It's obvious that the resurrection was unbelievable and a big deal to the disciples, as it would likely be for us. However, I'm going to suggest that the resurrection doesn't seem to be a big deal for Jesus. What was a big deal to Jesus was the challenges of this life with its cycle of the harsh and the beautiful. And this is where we see him living, suffering, struggling, yielding, crying, worshiping, listening, healing, exhorting, us to not fear. Nor do I think he's telling us to hang in there in this life because resurrection is coming. And if we persevere, we'll get to heaven or at least avoid hell. And for Jesus, all of that, I think, was a given. Why are you frightened, he said? Why do do doubts arise in your hearts? I told you all of this was going to happen. The Messiah must suffer and die. And he is inviting us to live now and live fully in dark capital letters. See the divine presence in all of life. Take my presence to Jerusalem. Take it to all the nations. Wherever you go, make the presence of the divine bigger. So big that people recognize the presence that has always been there right in the ordinary miracles of life. The times together. The meals. The presence behind all relationships. The love that sustains the universe. The spirit that tells us we are more than just our biology. The voice that says, you are the beloved. Resurrection is great. But what if these appearances are foremost about presence? Where two or three are gathered, he is there. He just shows up and says, don't be afraid. Notice that he is here communicating, eating, loving. And these are the places where God meets us. Where Christ's presence becomes real. He appears in the ordinary places. In the joys and struggles of our lives. And especially in those places we go when life just feels like too much. That presence is everywhere. What's unpredictable is our awareness. Erasmus, the Christian humanist, had a quotation that hung over the door of Carl Jung's residence in Geneva, written in Latin Vocaretus atque non voctus et Deus ad urit. Henri Nouwen says that Latin is the only ecumenical language because it's the only language no one understands. (laughs) The translation is, bidden or unbidden, bidden or unbidden, God is present. G.K. Chesterton's controversial line, every man that enters a brothel is looking for God. Divine presence It's an awareness that what we truly need is always with us and in us. And we look in the wrong places, not knowing it's always right here. And I'm suggesting these appearances are not primarily about life after death. For Jesus, that's a given. These appearances fulfill what the message has been all along. The the Messiah is to suffer. God suffers with us and for us exactly assuming that the res- and assuming that the resurrection is a given. And Christ is saying, I'm in this thing called life with you. To be spiritual is to yield to the realities of life, both the gift and the challenge, the joy and the suffering. And the only loving response is compassion. And this compassion makes all of us fellow pilgrims and sufferers. Now, suddenly, any one person's pain becomes all of our pain. And any one person's joy becomes all of our joy. We are called to be a community of joyful, eating sufferers. This is the motivation behind all that we do. Now, before these appearances, the disciples didn't get it. After these appearances, the collective faith of the disciples and perhaps the Church of history became the best evidence for the resurrection. Their servant martyr lives wouldn't have happened otherwise. They would have all gone back to their former safe lives. In fact, it was as they tried to go back to their old lives, to those places of safety, that Christ's presence told them. You're no longer good for that life. Take up your cross and follow me. I will live with you. I will love with you. I will suffer with you. I will walk with you. I will never leave or forsake you. In fact, I will die with you. This is divine presence. As it was for the disciples, this is hard to believe. It's too good to be true. And to demonstrate that in such a simple way, Christ does something very normal. Let's have something to eat. He's almost saying in verse 44, like, what's the big deal? I told you this was going to happen. I came, I suffered, I died, and here I am. Now let's eat. The suffering, perseverance, dying was the hard part. I had to do it alone. It felt like even God had forsaken me. It was overwhelming to me. It was overwhelming for you. That was the hard part. This part's easy. I never doubted this part. Come on, let's eat together. And he did the same in the Emmaus story. And when we all, and when we ate together, or when they ate together, that's when they recognized him. And then he disappeared. Where did he go? He went right here, he went right here, presence. Jesus in our text doesn't make this his appearance a teaching moment or a lecture or a parable to a captive audience. He sits down with them and eats. The spiritual always accompanies the ordinary, the ordinary miracles of life. And in Christ, body and spirit are one. That's what incarnation is. In Greek thought, and I'm afraid in much of Christian thought today, body and spirit are in opposition to one another. And the reality of suffering and the joy and beauty of life become friends. The ordinary miracle of every moment. Fear not, he says, let's eat. Yes, I'm a suffering servant. So are you, let's eat. I'm the man of sorrow, now let's eat. Our service today is almost over, so let's eat. This is the life as Eucharistic. We're taken, we're blessed, we're broken, and we're given. Initially these appearances, Jesus, in these appearances, Jesus isn't even recognized as resurrected. They think he's a gardener, a traveler, an angel. He is recognized as he makes relational connections with people. He calls their names. He serves them. He eats. And he talks about suffering. And he calls them to witness his resurrected life, his presence, right in the middle of their ordinary lives. He shows up where there is laughter, weeping, preoccupations, tensions, love, conflict, disagreement. As Abraham Joshua Heschel says, something sacred is at stake in every event. And we are called to notice that he shows up everywhere. In our business transactions, in our primary relationships, in our struggles, in our various agendas, in our tendency to become preoccupied with our grievances, in the poorest of our community, and in the wealthiest in all saints, in our coming to grips with a hall that needs repair, in our distractions, in Syria, in the ordinary places of our lives. This is the message of the cross. He calls them and us to take this presence everywhere that life leads us, to Jerusalem, to all the nations, to affirm the presence of this cosmic Christ. Yes, uh, there are special times for our liturgies, our worship, our Eucharist, our conscious prayers, our acts of service, our study, our theorizing. But these are celebrations of his presence in our daily lives. His presence affirms that we are from God. We are spiritual beings having a human experience and not the other way around. And he is telling us that the cycle of life is both harsh and beautiful. Live it all in my presence by faith. By faith, the substance of things hoped for. Richard Rohr suggests that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. It's certitude, certainty. Counterintuitive. Live it all in my presence by faith. We know that we cannot know, and I might suggest that certitude, certainty is a very small hermeneutic, a small lens for interpreting things. It always creates judgment. Ask questions, consider and study other hermeneutics. The normal way to talk about the resurrection is to minimize this life because a better life is coming. I am suggesting That resurrection as a given frees us to live this life to the full, giving and receiving love. For there is no place where the presence of this cosmic Christ does not reach. Christ knew that. The disciples learned it. Not just because of the resurrection, but because of his presence with them. And we are called to live it. It's always been there. It was there in the beginning. It will be there at the end. It's in the Old Testament when we look with a resurrection hermeneutic. Listen how David puts it in his better moments in Psalm 139. And listen to these words as a reflection of that divine presence that is inescapable. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my line down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go or flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in death, in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me become night, Even the darkness is not night to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. I try to count them, they are more than the sand. And when I come to the end, I am still with you. Amen.